Pushkin. Legacy of Speed is executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. I'm going to play for you an interview I did with an old friend and Pushkin co-conspirator, Justin Richmond, who you may know from our music show, Broken Record, which Justin has made happen since the beginning. But now Justin has his own gig. He's the creator and host of a new podcast called Started from the Bottom. It's a show about origin stories, particularly the origin stories of men and women of color, how they climbed their way up the ladder, the obstacles they overcame along the way. And for this episode that I'm about to play for you, I turned the tables on Justin and I interviewed him. We did it in front of a group of students and faculty at Medgar Evers College on the side of the old Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, New York. As someone of West Indian heritage, let me just say how gratified I was at the heavy West Indian turnout for this. And in good West Indian fashion, they asked some pretty good questions at the end, too. So here we go. My conversation with my good friend, Justin Richmond. Hello, hello. Is this on? Check, check. Yep. This is great. Works. Um, so welcome. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. And it is certainly the first live taping of Started from the Bottom. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Malcolm, thank you so much for doing this. Not at all. It's my pleasure, Justin. I've long dreamed of being on a stage with you. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine that's true. <laughs> but it's very nice of you to say. No, I think we, I hope this is the start of, of, of many of these, Justin. But I think the premise of today's is that I'm interviewing you, right? That's, isn't that our plan? Yeah, a little. We want to get the Justin... Want to get the, the Justin Richmond origin story? It's a little introduction to me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, which I, you know, I love these things because I've often, I'm a firm believer that if you want to get to know somebody, even if they've done a lifetime of interesting things, if you just do the first twenty years, you get most of what you need, <laughs> right? That it's a surprising how much you can glean from. So let's start. Let's do the Justin Richmond analysis. And I wanted to start with the thing we have in common. Now, you might look at us and say, what on earth do they have in common? But we do have one very significant fact in common, which is we're both the product of biracial marriages. Yeah. And I wanted to start with that. First of all, you're more obviously biracial than me. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) You, (laughs) I'm a little more subtle. You're, yours is, (laughs) my dad would say it's his genes. (laughs) (laughs) So you're, tell me about your parents. Let's start with those two. How did they meet, Justin? Start with that. They met at Compton Community College. Uh-huh. So he he grew up in Compton, and uh, and my mom was there. For, I, I don't even know why she was there, but she was there, she was there. I, she was friends with someone there, and so she was there. They met. Where did your mom grow up? My mom grew up in a city called El Monte, which is by Pasadena. My mom grew up on the racetrack. Her dad was a racehorse trainer, so she grew up on on the racetrack, uh-huh. and. Uh, yeah, they're, just, they're very different people, even t- to this day. And it might be because they've never seen them together. But my kids still cannot wrap their heads around that. My parents are my like, you know, if there's any relationship between them or ever was, you know. Uh, they were never together. They were never married. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, like, they, liked, they just liked each other, you know. So how long were they together? Off and on about five years, four years. Oh, so you have very few memories of 
the two of them as a couple? Very few. Early on, like I remember being over at his house because I have two half-brothers. So early on, I remember being over there with them, going to Disneyland on occasion. But yeah, the memories are very sporadic early on, you know, mm-hmm. of, of them being... And you're, you're raised by your mom. Raised a bit by both, but primarily by my mom, yeah. And where are you growing? In Long Beach? or Yes, in Long Beach. And then at five, my mom moved to the city of Orange, which is in Orange County, which is about 20 minutes south of Long Beach. Yeah. yeah. What is Orange like? Orange, as far as places in Orange County go, is pretty diverse. There's a, a large Latino community <laughs> there. But aside from the Latino population, it's overwhelmingly white. And that was a that was a change from even even having white parents, like even having like my mom being white and having that whole side of my family be white. I never thought of it that way until I showed up. You know, she moved there right before I started a month before I started kindergarten. And I remember my first day of kindergarten, I rolled up and I had a this was 94. So I had a Power Rangers shirt on. thought I was real cool. Power Rangers lunchbox. I really thought I was nervous, but I thought I was fresh. I thought it was good. Right. And I'll never forget. This kid who was in line in front of me, like looked back at me. And, and so this is the first time, like, again, I'm like, I'm not really realizing the differences between us yet, but he turns around and looks at me and goes, are you poor? Are you poor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, like, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, you look poor, are you poor? And I was like, what the, you know, I was just deflated. I didn't know exactly what to think about it at the moment, but I was, I was just deflated just cause you know, you're a five-year-old, you're going to kindergarten, you're trying to, we had just moved, mm-hmm. and I thought I looked good, but apparently I looked poor. <laughs> I still remember his name. Did you tell your mom? Yes, I did. That I remember. That I remember. I remember going home and and talking to my mom. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's when I think her hope was that <laughs> it would take a little bit long for for those dynamic for that dynamic to set in, right? But that's when we, we had, a, like, you know, when she started talking to me about the fact that I am now at this overwhelmingly white place. And yeah. um, many of the people I'm going to be around are likely growing up, if not out and out racist, racist things being said in their household. Mm-hmm. They're going to be parroting those things back. Um, at that, so. if I asked you in, say, middle school. Mm-hmm. To, to how you would describe yourself racially, what would you have said? Black. I knew I was black. You just because because of my experience, because of that experience going to the so, you know, off I would say off and on between kindergarten and ninth grade, I was going to overwhelmingly white schools, and you know these are places where I would get called nigger. You know, so when you're getting called nigger, you know what you are. You know, and then I go talk to my dad about it. He go, well, yeah, well you are a nigger. So you know that was like his way of trying to be like, yeah, you are a nigger. So yeah, you know. So I, I definitely knew what I was. I knew I was black. Mm-hmm. Um, and where it got, di- well, I say where it got difficult was when probably in junior high, when it was teachers who I think sort of interacting with me differently because of my color. You know, like I, had, I got in a lot of trouble because I grew locks. And I remember they wanted to kick me out of school. There was a, there was a neo-Nazi kid named I'm gonna name I love names. how you're naming all these people like on the bulletin board. Where are you, man? Right. And every day with him, go. You know, it was go back to Africa. I mean, it got to the point police got involved. You know, mm-hmm. and and um, he never got kicked out of school somehow. But um, 
But I would say the point in junior highs when teachers, I started getting just weird comments from teachers and weird, nothing I did was ever good enough. There's always a perception that I was lazy. And that's when I think, because I was, I was always a smart kid. And because my dad played football, and because I was so tall, I was always tall, the perception was always that I was going to go and, and be an athlete. But from an early age, I realized I wanted to cut against that. Like, I, I didn't want, okay, cool, yeah, I can, I can play ball. I can do that. But what I realized I really wanted was to show people. Like, early on, I, I kind of got this um, need to prove people wrong in me. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, I always wanted to be, I always wanted to be the smartest person in the room at that point as a young kid. And I didn't always have the confidence that I was, but I, I deep, deep down somewhere I wanted to be. And by the time I got to, to junior high and the teachers were sort of, I had these, these odd interactions. I think that's when I started to, that's when my, my interest in education started to wane and my, I would say my pride in myself started to, to wane. How many black teachers did you have in your public school experience? Zero. Zero. Do you think that's something to do with it? I think that's a big I think has a big part to do with it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You got it. And that's the premise of my show. If you're not around, if you're not around people who look like you, who are successful, you know, and my dad, God bless him, you know, he was in the NFL, so to the degree he was a success. But my dad, and I love him, but you know, he also like has a very small way of thinking, you know. And so I never really felt like I had someone what do you mean by a small way of thinking for him it was always like yeah just go be a cop you know like that's sure money like you can go be a cop you can get a uh, hundred grand a year with overtime you can make like 120 like what are you doing with this college thing what are you doing with school you know like they didn't he, he couldn't get that i wanted to be that i wanted to be an educated brother you know he couldn't get it i say a lot and a lot of my family didn't it's difficult to talk about because I like in so many ways they were successful, you know, but at the, at the same time, I knew there was a level of life that I wanted to achieve that no one in my family had achieved, you know. My dad wanted me to go be a cop because he's like, that's guaranteed income you can, and you can do it. Uh, but I just had other aspirations. So it was, it was a weird thing between growing up in a white world that didn't necessarily believe in me and growing up in you know, my black family in a black world that kind of had a way of thinking that wasn't, they didn't understand what I was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Your dad's not, he's not 100% wrong. Being a police officer, I'm not saying you should have done it. I'm just saying from his position, being an LAPD officer, assuming that's what he's talking about, Yeah. that is a good job. It's a great job. I mean, in terms of like, if you look at just like income and like what you could provide for your family, like it's a great job. But. It's the means of, there's an entire generation of largely black men who grew up in LA for whom the LAPD was the stepping stone. I mean, you got a job in the LAPD and then your kids got to go to college. I mean, that was like, he's reflecting something that was real, right? No, it was a real thing. And I don't, I, at the time I was very, I was always upset when you bring it up, you know? Now I understand why he did. But, you know, when you have a, a, a dream and something you want to accomplish, mm-hmm. hearing things like that don't instill confidence in you. Because I always have to hear these questions, like, well, what if school doesn't work out? It's like, well, what do you mean? What's, like, you know, what, like, by the time I get to college and I'm, and I'm meeting people, I'm like, I can very much tell that this isn't their experience that they had. Like, what if school doesn't work out? It was just expected, you know? Mm-hmm. Is it that your dad 
Does he not think you're smart enough for college, or does he think the obstacles facing a young black man are too high? What's his, what's his theory? I, my, I don't know. My dad thinks he's the smartest man in the world. So, <laughs> and I think based on, he also thinks he has the greatest gene pool in the world. So I think, <laughs> so I think based on that, uh, he knew I was very smart. Uh, that was his belief, at least. But with my dad, I think it very much had to do, again, with like his perception of what was possible in the world. You mm-hmm. know, He grew up in a place called Ujima Village in Compton, which was a housing project that closed down because the soil was toxic. Like They didn't know it at the time, but the soil was toxic. So people were getting sick and cancer and dying, babies being born deformed. And um, I think it was also a sense of maybe his dreams were limited, too. Or his, not his, his dreams were big, but I would say his dreams were... At some point, I say his dreams were crushed as well. You know, my dad did get kicked out of the NFL. The story, as it's been told to me, is my dad got drafted by the Colts in 84, I want to say, 85. And the team captain, a white dude, called my grandmother a nigger. And so my dad whooped his ass. <laughs> they, they had a, he got reprimanded. They had a team dinner. It happened again. My dad whooped his ass. <laughs> and he was kicked off the team. Yeah. And I think when that is... When that's what happens to your dream, I think you start to worry in some way about- Was it his dream? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he still have regrets today? I'm sure he does. Yeah. I don't think he regrets that. Like, uh, I don't that- think he regrets <laughs> whooping the team captain's ass or anything, but um, yeah, I, I think he wishes it turned out different. Absolutely, yeah. you know? Yeah. Does he understand what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. You know, the first time- <laughs> The first time he really got it, well, he got it when I went to, when I got into Berkeley. He he was kind of he was shocked. I was shocked. My whole family was shocked. <laughs> I couldn't believe it too. So much so that I remember I drove up. I drove up to I wrote the counselor. I was like, "Listen, like I got some I got to I got to talk to you. I didn't want to do it over email. Didn't want to do it over phone. Like I needed to look this lady in the eye. So I was like, "Hey, can I meet you?" And she's like, "Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Come down this date this time." Drove up to Berkeley. And yeah, I sat with her. I was like, look, I, I got this deferred admission. This is real? Yeah, Wait, yes, me, this is real. Hold on, hold okay. on, Justin, Justin. You're living in Orange County. At the time, I'm living in L.A. Yeah. In L.A.? Yeah. So you drove six hours yeah. to Berkeley. Yeah, six, seven, eight, yeah. To ask a official of Berkeley whether your acceptance that it was real. I came that far. I wasn't going to like, <laughs> and then also like try to figure out how to rent a place up there and pay a mission just to not. So I drove up there and, you know, so I'm, I'm is this real? And she goes, yes, this is real. So I go, so I can start uh, January 15. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. As a philosophy major. Yes. Okay. And I can switch my major if I want once I get in. <laughs> yes. All right. You know, and then, and then, I, and I'm kind of trying to work up to also like, so and I ask her, I say, listen, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? Like, I don't have a high school diploma. I don't have a GED. I don't have an equivalency. So, you sh- like, so based on that, now you already said this was real, but based on, now with this new information, based on that, is this really, is this, can I really come here? We skipped a step. The step we skipped was you didn't graduate from high school. No, nah, I left at 14. At 14? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I left at 14. Yeah. I also didn't graduate from high school, but that's because my mom called the principal and said, Malcolm won't be coming in. He's more productive at home. <laughs> that was it. So everyone was like, okay, fine. Like that's, you know, that's, a very, I, that's the world I grew up in. It was a sort of forgiving, understanding, do what you want kind of world. Um, wait, you left high school at 14 to do what? 
yeah. <laughs> nothing good. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing good. I would say I was pretty beat down by that point, you know, like confidence wise. I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, I left and uh, I was uh, I was just doing my own thing. What's your mom doing when you're doing this? So here's so what happened was so like basically my freshman year of high school, I was so rock bottom with my confidence. Like I had basically like a zero point something GPA. Like I had like yeah. no GPA. It was literally zero point something. And the only the highest grade I got was a I thought it was a C, but it turns out it was a D. I got a D in journalism. Yeah. And the teacher pulled me aside. He's like, Look, Justin, you're too smart to fail. <laughs> you deserve an F. I'm not going to give you an F. I'm going to give you a D. I was like, oh, thank you, Mr. Muller. But it was like a zero point something. So they said, you're going to have to go to continuation school, which was just like a school, like, you know, for, for fuck ups. And my mom was like, yeah, you're not a fuck up. So you're not going to you're not going to go there. I, I, I go, OK. Uh, she's like, I'm going to have you stay home. And uh, this it sounds crazy, but I got to give her credit because it, it, it didn't work for a bit. But then it really worked. Um, she's like, I'm just gonna have you stay home. You're gonna read the paper every day while I'm at work. I'm gonna come home. You're gonna have a little report on a couple items you read. And of course, you know, for the longest, like, I, I just took advantage. I didn't do it, you know? Like, I just didn't. She, mm-hmm. she didn't want me being with fuck ups because she, she already could see, I think, that my confidence was shot and that was just gonna be worse. So she pulled me out. I took advantage of it. I didn't do much. Um, until I was like almost 16, common story, I feel like for a lot of people, I, I, I got a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X and it really reignited uh, my ambition. So then at that point, I enrolled in community college because I didn't really want to deal with like trying to start over from my freshman year of high school. Um, so I enrolled in community college and just did that for about four or five years. and. So I could transfer, I transferred. So I started that at like, just before I turned 16 and I transferred to Berkeley at 21. Oh, I see. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, Malcolm and I get into what it was like being a black student at UC Berkeley. And I share a story with him about randomly meeting my other mentor, Quincy Jones in Havana, Cuba. So you, you have a kind of loss of confidence. And do you get it back in Berkeley, at Berkeley? Yeah, 100%. Gabrielle Williams right here. I met Gabrielle at Berkeley. Uh-huh. She was doing her PhD. We met at the Black Student Lounge, or it was the, the um, that was like her, her student job thing. And she was listening to music. And I heard, so we, we, we connected. And um, uh, there was a professor there by the name of Ricky Vincent. He was like the preeminent funk music scholar and was writing a book on the Black Panthers. And uh, I had a strong interest in the Panthers. So like between like Gabrielle and Ricky Vincent and, and all these uh, other black folk that looked like me that I could relate to. And, and, and for Gabrielle coming from, from LA, Southern California, like there was just a lot in common. Mm-hmm. It definitely 100% helped me, but, but she also helped me through a lot. <laughs> because as many times I've called Gabrielle, including when I took this job at Pushkin, like, should I really do this? This is a smart move. And she'll, she'll have to talk. You know, when I got into grad school, man, should I really take out these loans, Gabrielle? I don't know. It's a lot of money. Like, I don't want to be in debt. And Gabrielle's like, Justin, just come on. That's what you're supposed to do. Like, you're going to school. You got to pay, you know, unless you can afford it, take the loan out and go. So, um, yeah, I definitely got a ton of confidence back there. Not that I'm, the, you know, and then slowly along the way, 
ebbed and flow, like as new situations arose and I sort of fell into journalism because I couldn't really, I couldn't get a job after college. And I knew, I, I kind of went in wanting to be a professor. By the time I got to Berkeley, I was like, I, I kind of want to do my bachelor's, get a PhD, then teach. But then I sort of fell out of love with, the, with, with higher education just because of the bureaucracy element. <laughs> Sorry, Alexis and Peter, you know, you guys are <laughs> wonderful to have us here. <laughs> but uh, I, I would talk to Gabrielle, I would talk to my guy, Ricky Vincent, and sort of be like, well, what is it that I like to do? Well, I like the idea of writing and connecting with people, communicating with people. I like the idea of researching. And so that's when like, the idea struck to do journalism. I started getting involved with radio around town, KPFA, which was the Pacifica station in Berkeley, the campus station. I took a journalism class. So I kind of, and it just snowballed from there where I fell into journalism. But by the time I, like, I get a job, I'm 25, I'm at, I'm at NPR, and uh, my girlfriend got pregnant, who's now my beautiful wife, Danielle. We have two beautiful kids, Corinne and Ella. And I was making like $30,000 a year in PR, paying back loans and about to have a kid. My confidence, I'd say at that point, sinks back to all time low. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and um, I have a friend named Drew who, who took me to Cuba. It was just like, I sense you're kind of going through it. Let me, let me take you to Cuba. This is when Cuba opened up. He's like, I was like, I can't really afford it. He's like, I'm going to pay for it. You sent me back whenever. So me and Drew went down. And this is the most random incident in my life. This is the most random thing that ever happened in my life. It's, we're in Cuba, in Havana. I've driven to Mexico twice, but other than that, I've never left the country. And uh, I run into Quincy Jones in Havana. <laughs> and Quincy Jones, like, I, I, I'm like, damn, that's Quincy Jones. I, run over, I, go, I go, hey, Quincy, can I, can I get a picture? And he goes, yeah. And he doesn't get up. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna sit down and take a picture of Quincy. And he started asking me, he goes, what's your sign? I go, Leah. I go, Leo. He goes, oh, I'm Leo Rising. I go, cool. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and he just starts talking to me, and we have like a three-hour conversation. Wait, we have dinner. You never told me, because you and I met Quincy like five years ago? Yeah, that was a full circle moment for me, because we ended up going to Quincy's house. But I had like a three-hour dinner with Quincy Jones in Havana. At my lowest point, I'm making like no money. I'm broke. My wife was looking at me crazy, because she's like, why are you in Cuba? <laughs> Running around like she didn't know if I was maybe gonna not gonna come back or what. Um, but I met Quincy, and from that he was like, "Oh, you're you're a cool brother, man." gave me his gave me his card, uh-huh. and normally I wouldn't have reached out, but I felt I was like, "Okay, this man discovered Oprah Winfrey, Will Smith, Ray Charles." So I was like, "You know, what am I gonna do? Not reach out? Not re-? so <laughs> I could use all the help I could get." So I reached out to Quincy. And, and was like, look, look Quincy, like, I, I realized I didn't want to reach out with nothing. So me yeah. and my friend Sonari Glinton, one of the few black men at NPR that sort of took interest in me right away, sort of noticed when I was there that I needed, mm-hmm. I needed his, his guidance. We decided I shouldn't just go to him with, with nothing to offer. So I was like, look, I'm a journalist. I work in NPR, work in audio. Everyone, you know, it's 2016. Podcasting is sort of new, but people are starting to have them. You've done everything from you know, everything across media that you could possibly do except for podcasting. Like, we can make you a podcast. And he was like, great. So, you know, it wasn't that easy, but it was a couple of meetings, finally got into a great, got to sign some paperwork. I still have it framed. It's like me and Quincy Jones' signature, which is the craziest thing in the world to me. But what happened was I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't sell the thing. I realized I didn't know the first thing about business. I've been flying blind my whole life, just trying to figure things out. I'm taking out loans. I don't know what I'm doing. And that's when the idea for this show 
occurred to me is like, yeah. if I could just talk to, if I could talk to someone else, some other black man who has like money, Magic Johnson, Byron Allen, who at that time just bought the Weather Channel. I was like, I bet they could tell me what to do. Cause I was in these rooms just like realizing like, I don't understand this jargon. I don't understand the speak and I'm failing, you know? And so it, it really occurred to me at that moment, how important having people who look like you, who you can point to in your life, you can point to are successful at this particular thing, how that can really be, um, it's not the only way to figure things out, but it's, man, it makes things so much easier, you know? Let's go back a moment and say, what's the version of your life where you wouldn't have suffered that kind of crisis of confidence? I can't imagine. Give me a version. Give me a version where it's, e- where it's easy. In the United States? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, think you, I don't think you can have it easy being born black in the United States. I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. I would say best case scenario is you're like a Carlton type or something from Fresh Prince or something, you know, we're like, okay, you're successful, but like, are you really, how successful are you if you're not acknowledging the whole part of yourself? So it's hard for me to answer, but I guess in a scenario where there is no, mm-hmm. and this is interesting because I'm also thinking about this from, from my kids now, like they're, they're getting a much different life than I had access to different kinds of people and education and two parents who are supportive of each other and supportive of them together. Uh, so I think, but, but I mean, I guess like for me, it's hard for, it really is hard for me to imagine, but, but maybe I guess the best case, you know, it's funny. I used to, I used to dream that I was like a, uh, as a kid that like, like I was like a Huxtable, you know, which is maybe a little controversial now, but like maybe that would have been a best case scenario, you know, mm-hmm. dad was a doctor, mom was, you know, whatever, and in a brownstone. And... Give me the worst case scenario. So you don't get into Berkeley, what happens? Is that the key moment? No, nah, probably getting probably getting the Malcolm X autobiography because that was I was in a pretty bad spot there. But um, I'll say before I came to Pushkin, I almost gave up I, again. Like when you don't have examples of success around you, and you don't have people who can teach you about money and how to um, not even like in a gross like uber capitalist way, but just like how to accumulate it so that you can have the things you want and need in life, like. I didn't have that, so I almost left journalism, even though I, you know, I love it and I wanted to be in it. I almost left it. I had a job offer with ADP, the uh, payroll, pro- processing. payroll processing, to do outdoor sales with ADP, because I was like, well, I'll just go do sales, you know, like I'll just, I'll make some money doing sales, and I almost took that offer, you know, and that was maybe six months before, before I got an email from from you, from Mila Bell, and from you. To come up for Pushkin, which which I would say changed again my trajectory thanks to you, Jacob Weisberg, you know, me and LaBelle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, because because it was also bleak then a little bit, you know, it was also it was tough then, man. After the break, Malcolm and I talk about the difference between getting second chances when you're black versus when you're white, and then the audience gets to ask some questions. Stick around. In making sense of people's life stories and trying to figure out what's the difference between a, in America, between a black life story and a white life story, 
one of the things, and it's very, very difficult to convince, persuade white people of this fact, is it's how many strikes you get or how many chances you get. If you're an upper-middle-class, well-educated white person, you get like 10 chances. You can screw up nine times, and the system will catch you every time and start you over again. And if you're in the same position as a young black person, you maybe get two. And I remember, this is a weird example of this, but there's an incredibly interesting book that was written about a suburb of Buffalo, a wealthy suburb of Buffalo. I think it's Williamsville, I'm not sure, or Amherst. The book, I think, is called The Safest City in America. It was about how there's no juvenile delinquency in Williamsville. And the reason is not that there's no misbehavior among juveniles. It's that they just call it something different, right? It's hijinks. It's sowing the wild oats. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. oh, so-and-so just has to learn to be. It's Everything is getting, everyone gets so many different chances that Man. no one ever looks never comes to the definition of juvenile delinquency. And like that, that thing, this question of how many chances you get is, it sounds listening to your story that you were very close to running out of chances. It's even like more than that. It's just, it's like, I didn't even know that I had chances, you know, and maybe I didn't. I never knew I had chances. You know, there's a point where, you know, I guess in your example, the difference would be in those instances, those kids in Buffalo, they're thought to be behaving badly, whereas when you're a black kid misbehaving, you're bad. You yeah. know, you yourself. Oh, it's you're defined, bad. absolutely defined differently. Like you're yeah. a terrible person. You're mis- you can't you can't succeed. You can't do. It's not, none of this is for you. You know. Yeah. And so that's where I was at, which is a pretty bleak place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My speaking of father, so my father who passed away a couple of years ago, but actually today weirdly is his birthday. Um, my mom always says of my dad that, that his motto was, nothing bad will ever happen, which I've thought about a lot. Partly that's a function of his personality. He had this kind of unstoppable, unstoppable personality. But he was also a, came from a stable English family. He was well-educated. He was very intelligent. The system always worked for my dad. He was a nice person. He was dependable. He was charming. He was people liked him. So it made sense that his theory of life was nothing bad will ever happen. My mother would imagine, you know, she's a mom. She would imagine all kinds of horrible, and he would just, he would look at her uncomprehendingly. It's like, no, 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 no. Basically, nothing ever bad is going to happen, right? And it was essentially true of, like, and that message, I was thinking as you were talking about your dad, the difference in messages sent to, the two of us at a young age, I have this dad who just thinks, it didn't even occur to him that there's ever going to be any, you know, detour off the runway. Yeah, man. Yeah, something about opportunity and there's something about the way in which society asks you or, or demands that you think about yourself, you know? It's mm-hmm. like sometimes you don't even get an option in how you want to think about yourself. Mm-hmm. I feel like the one thing that I don't, maybe it's fine this way, but the, the transition is still really the way that your life kind of turns around. I, I don't mean turns around. It's not like you were living a life of crime. But you know what I mean? Like I'm something not happens. incriminating myself on this. <laughs> <laughs> Some, something happens that's really kind of interesting and mysterious to you in your 20s. 
It was a it was like yeah between it was just building up my confidence I guess between fifteen and now I'm still trying you know like um, from that time I did drop out of high school to like just getting through college like what motivated me was a sense of failure I was like man if I don't get a high school if I don't get a college diploma like what I have eighth grade certificate like what is that gonna do for me you know so that was kind of like this real like. It wasn't like a carrot type of motivation. It was like, you know, and um, and then I was like, well, then I couldn't get a job. And then I went, started interning and I got into grad school. And then that gave me another, okay, now it's grad school. And I got to figure out grad school is a big, scary thing and do that. And then I get out of there. I get right into this job at NPR. And within a, two months, like my girlfriend's pregnant, you know, and it's like, now it's like, well, I got to figure out how to provide. So like my whole, I feel like Every step of my life up until recently has been about how do I just, how do I not, how do I not fail? And that's sort of been my motivation to succeed. And I'm trying to figure out a way now to be motivated now that that, like, that's why I'm on this journey of just trying to talk to successful people. I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to be, you know, first time we met in Santa Monica. <laughs> I was like, damn, I can't believe I'm going to go meet Malcolm Gladwell. That's crazy. And, you know, we had a very lovely conversation. I just remember, like, I can't get out of here without asking, like, like, how did you get comfortable having money? <laughs> and I asked you that. What did I say? You're like, I just wanted to be able to do my own thing. I wanted to have my freedom. I wanted to be able to, I never wanted people to assign things to me or to be told what to do. And so, and I was like, damn, that's a great answer, <laughs> you know? And, but that's why, that's largely why I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still trying to figure out this, mm-hmm. this, this world and this life and navigating different things. So that's why I'm out. That's why I'm doing this and talking to, people like Charlemagne the God and people like uh, Susie Orman and just different people who, you know, against the odds, against all odds, like figured this thing out, you know? And and my hope is that people listening to it, it inspires them not only to take big swings, but also to seek out real world, real life mentorship. You know, like obviously I want this to be a platform of mentorship for people. So hopefully you walk away having learned a lot and feeling boosted. But also, like, I think, you know, you need to have real life mentors. And I've I've been lucky enough to have so many, Gabrielle, you, Jacob, all kinds of different people. I'm hoping as I try to figure this out, people will figure it out along along with me. Yeah. That's lovely. Well, thank you, Justin. And we'll, uh, let's do some audience questions. Why don't you? Q&A, if there are any questions. They could be for me or Malcolm. Here comes someone. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my name is Kevin Nesbitt. I'm an educator, one of the administrators that um, create the blockages you talked about. No, um, but um, thank you so much for the way you presented you're a this. Good bureaucracy. I'm a good, I'm good yeah, bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, good good bureaucracy. Yeah, good VP, as I call myself. Um, I've had many friends that come from biracial families, and I think as someone that does not come from a biracial family, there's always this belief that there's some sort of protection that you might receive from your whiteness if you choose to adopt it or if you choose to embrace it. And because I, I appreciate the way that you said you understood immediately you were a black man and that you had no choice because um, even if you wanted to imagine something other, society told you, no, you're a black man, right? Mm-hmm. And you gave many examples for that. But I have other friends that um, throughout their journey, they've been able to say, well, it's, it's not that it's a choice, but it's a little messier than that for them because they are both black, they're both white, and they grapple with what that means. Did you have any moments where you felt that um, having a parent that was white actually enabled um, some moments of protection or other... As Malcolm described it, um, maybe one more choice, right? One more um, set of options. That's my question. Yeah, Harford, I guess I don't want to speak for other people, but my my belief is when I talk to, when I hear these stories, it's just that there's a bit of 
them deluding themselves perhaps you know like i don't but hard hard to say i don't want to speak for anyone else but i didn't feel that maybe if i'd had a different mom maybe it would have been right. different but i was never allowed to think that anything different you know great thank yeah. you yeah yeah there's a this is my grand theory of biracial marriages there's a big difference between black father white mother and white father black mother which would be your yeah we're actually very different kinds yeah. the Historically, what a biracial marriage was, was a white man and a black woman. Yeah. That was the acceptable form for society. Goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. That's what it was. It was never the reverse. And only really recently have you seen black men marry white women. And I think the road is a lot harder both for the, for the marriage and the children. It's a lot harder when your father's black and your Mom is white. It's yeah, and I think if I reflect on the cases, I'm thinking about my friendships. Where they, it was largely the what you described, where traditional, I think that the, the traditional, and maybe yeah. the household of the fathers, whether separated or not. Later on, there, there was some sort of protection. The dad would, you'd have another outcome, right? You have another choice. So yeah. that, I just wanted to hear a bit about that. I think society views a black man, white woman as as being subversive, and in a way that they don't view the reverse as being subversive. Thank you. Yeah. It's true. Hello. Uh, firstly, thank you, Malcolm and Justin. You guys are, it's just been a joy to have you here. And I've just enjoyed this whole conversation. Um, I just wanted from you, Justin, like a soundbite or maybe just like a quick statement, like words of advice from one biracial man to another biracial man, just how to like navigate the professional world and how to just keep your bearings and keep yourself grounded. Man, I'm not <laughs> listening to my show because I think there's people far greater than me that are going to be giving advice. But I would say to this point, in the instances where I haven't code switched, I've always been much more successful. Mm. You know, I don't know if that's because I've been lucky but also some of it comes down to my, like, I, I also think you, you shouldn't capitulate. So also, like, if someone doesn't want you, like, I, I, I do have imposter syndrome, yet and still it's like I do somewhere in me have this belief that, like, I, I can't help but be myself, you know? And I, I think if, as long as you just are true to yourself, whatever that is, however you view yourself, identify yourself, hmm. behave like yourself. Like, I think that's all you can do. And I think in those instances, like just knowing that you bring a lot to the table being you, than you do you being someone else. Yeah. And if you don't, you'll find out, right? Like yeah. sometimes it doesn't pay to be me in certain situations. And I've, I've, you know, I've found out, but okay, then fine. That one's not for me. Let me go to the next situation where it is good for me to be there, you know? Um, I was at NPR before I was at Pushkin with Malcolm, and that was a place that I was authentic to myself, but it didn't feel like that was, it wasn't appreciated. Mm. And, you know, so I got out. <laughs> to go where you're appreciated. To go where you're appreciated, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We have one more question. Oh, one oh, more question. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. So you both men are biracial, and I wanted to ask Mr. Gladwell, um, Justin identifies as black, and yourself? I don't think about it. I think that's sort of the difference between having, I have a West Indian mom, Justin is an African-American uh, father. If you're West Indian, you don't think about race in the same way. It's not this omnipresent thing in your life. So I was, 
I just think of myself as, I don't know. I, it's, I, when I grew up, it was never forced. I mean, it was never, I was never forced to answer that question. My mom thought of herself as a Jamaican, not as a white person or a black person. Or, so I don't have a, I don't have a, um, a kind of easy answer to that. You had a couple layers because Jamaican and then growing up in Canada, which I feel like is probably very different than yes, Canada being again. Here with I the never, I never got the 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 racial experience of as all of you, everyone in this room knows. The racial experience of living in this country is just profoundly different from the racial experience almost anywhere else. Would life have been different if you were darker complexion? Pro- probably, I guess. Although, well, black not black people always know that I'm biracial. White people don't necessarily know. So it would have made my. Uh, I have to tell my favorite st- story ever. Along these grounds, is I was running down. I went for a run one day in L.A. and running down Ocean Boulevard, and this black guy in a gorgeous open. Porsche 911, like one of those tricked out ones, like one of these incredibly handsome black men, looks at me, sees me running, stands up so he's like, you know, he's through the roof of his car, raises his hand like this and says, I love what you do, bro. So like, I get a lot of love from black people. <laughs> and that, so if I was darker, would I get more love from yeah. black people? I mean, maybe, but I, I can't see how I get even more than I already get. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, guys. And thank you to Medgar Evers College. I, you know, higher education is, is wonderful. And, you know. <laughs> Thanks so much to the amazing audience at Medgar Evers College, which was full of teachers and students from that college and also community members from around Brooklyn and elsewhere in New York. I also want to thank my guy, Malcolm Gladwell, who's had my back from day one and always treated me like a whole human being. One of the most smart and fantastic people I've ever met in my life. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be kicking off this podcast as a part of Pushkin Industries and to be doing my first episode with you. Started from the Bottom is produced by David Ja, edited by Keisha Williams, engineered by Ben Tolliday, booked by Laura Morgan, with production help from Leah Rose. The show's executive produced by Jacob Goldstein, who's not all up in the videos for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Ben Tolliday and David Ja, featuring Anthony Ags and Savannah Joe Lack. Listen to Start Up From The Bottom wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want ad-free episodes available one week early, sign up for Pushkin Plus. Check out pushkin.fm or the Apple Show page for more information. If you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. I'm Justin Richmond.